Um, but frankly, I'm really happy to get back to the main event now, which is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' teachings, um, where at the beginning, like we just saw in the Beatitudes, Jesus seems quite convinced that God wants to give God's life to us. That like no deficit, no history, no failure, that, like nothing about you or your life or your circumstances enough to render you ineligible for God to want to give God's life to you and to live God's life in you and through you. Um, that's the heart behind those Beatitudes that we, just, that we just reflected on and that we heard the first two weeks. And I want to make sure I keep that in front of us because as we move into the sermon, if we, if we, if we turn Jesus' teachings into this new, like, heavy burden, well, I don't think that's the heartbeat behind the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. I think the, heart, the heartbeat is Jesus actually thinks that everything he's describing is made possible as we consent to God living God's life in us and through us, that we don't have to sort of summon the strength on our own for these things, but rather that we can learn to cooperate with and consent to God living these things in us and through us. And I think as you'll see today and like throughout the sermon, I, I think that's actually really good news, like really exciting news. Uh, so let's go further into the text, but before we do that, a, a brief story and a quote from a journalist. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, there's a, a gentleman who describes himself as a sneakerhead. And so he's really passionate about sneakers. And I don't know if you knew this, but there's like a whole world of sneakers beyond the mall. There's collector's editions and limited releases and aftermarkets and iPhone apps to get your hands on these limited releases and the aftermarket prices on these shoes are even more expensive than the retail prices on these shoes. And this guy's a fan of this stuff. He's a, he's a hobby for him. But because he's such a fan of these uh, very, 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 very expensive sneakers, he notices them when he sees them out in the world. And one place he keeps seeing these very, very, very expensive sneakers is on the feet of prominent preachers when they preach. And he sort of observes this phenomenon and then he realizes it's not just very, very, very expensive sneakers, but it's like their whole attire. He learns a little bit more about fashion and realizes that often these preachers are parading around on stages as they preach and, you know, they make videos they put online and they build up their social media feeds with these images and videos. And in these images and videos, they're wearing lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money worth of fashion on their body while they preach. And so he creates an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. Have you heard of this? Yeah, it's an interesting cultural phenomenon. And I actually have kind of complicated feelings about Preachers and Sneakers. Um, but he just sort of puts it out there for people to observe and to think about, like, is this what a preacher is? In what ways does this maybe help the mission? Does this hurt the mission? Do we think preachers can't have nice things? Should preachers always have the nicest things? There's all kinds of questions that go along with this kind of thing, right? But in reporting on the phenomena of uh, these preachers wearing very nice sneakers, one journalist, uh, like a mainstream journalist, who, as far as I know, is not speaking from a place of any kind of personal faith commitment, made this observation. Let me put it on the screen. Referring to these preachers, the journalist said, they don't seem to have anything to offer me in the world because they don't seem different from the world. They don't seem to have anything to offer me in the world because they don't seem different from the world. And that takes us into what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount right after he offers these big, beautiful, generous blessings. Right after Jesus has looked at this crowd of people and basically described that the, that the life of God could be available to everyone here, right after he has given that blessing to the crowd, he then gives a sense of like vocation. He gives a couple of images to these people 
about like, who they are and what they are here for. This is what he says in Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's talk a little bit about salt and light. What they might have meant for Jesus when he said it, uh, what these images might mean for us. Well, first of all, salt uh, has a lot of work to do in the ancient world. Um, salt actually becomes a form of salary, which, by the way, is where the word salary comes from. I don't know if you knew that. But salt's so valuable that they literally pay people with salt. Uh, so salt's a form of payment or currency in the ancient world. Uh, salt gets added to fires for artisans who need hot fires to burn, and apparently salt added to a fire makes it burn hotter. So there's a couple of use cases there where salt is really functional in the world. However, the way Jesus speaks of it here, I think there's a couple other more obvious ways that we might want to hear the idea of salt for us today. And it actually has to do with this relationship with food, which, you know, is a, a case then and a case now. Uh, I don't know if you're a, a cook, and I don't know what your feelings are about meat. Uh, I have a lot of respect for more, more of my friends who have moved into vegetarian and vegan lifestyles, either for health or for ethical reasons. I am not one of them. <laughs> not yet, at least. I have started a new technique that I'm very excited about. I have spent years trying to hack the most perfect medium rare beef, like the most delicious steakhouse experience, because I don't want to spend money on steakhouse experiences, but I still want to have a steakhouse experience. And what I've discovered lately is the combination of a cowboy ribeye and a dry brine. So a cowboy ribeye, if you don't know, is when you go to the butcher case at the store, so the ribeye is that really, really marbled cut of steak that's really popular among a lot of steak lovers. By the way, I know it's the 11 a.m., I know you're already hungry, you didn't have breakfast. <laughs> deal with it, you can run to the restaurant afterwards. But a cowboy ribeye is a massive cut of ribeye that's meant for, for several people. It's many inches thick, and it still usually has the, the rib bone from the cow on it. So picture like a Flintstones piece of meat, right? And you can buy a cowboy ribeye at the store, and then it's, by the way, it's also the same cut of rib as like, or I mean a prime rib, right? A ribeye and a prime rib are the same kind of thing. So you, what you do is you bring the cowboy ribeye home, and you pull out one of those cookie cooling grids that you put in your sheet pan, you know that kind of crosshatch metal thing that lets air get underneath something? So you, you set that inside a, a, like a, a sheet tray, and then you put that ribeye on that, that thing so the air gets all the way around it, but not before you cake this mother in salt. I mean salt all over it, and you let it sit open air in the fridge on top of that rack so the air gets all the way around it, and you let it sit that way for like 24 hours, like 48 hours, and if you do that, here's what will happen. First of all, the salt on the surface of the meat will draw the moisture in the meat out to the surface, because that's one thing that salt does, right? Well, that's bad news, because then you just got wet steak, and wet steak doesn't brown well, which is why you want to do this for more than an hour, but at, at roughly the hour mark, the opposite starts happening, and because the cell tissue in that meat wants to have sort of equilibrium, it starts drawing that salty water back into the beef, and for the next 24, 48 hours, the salt will actually permeate all the tissue of that beef. And then you put that thing on the grill, woo! You like, and here's the thing, if you do it right, it doesn't taste salty, believe it or not, even though you cake lots of salt on it, it just tastes, it tastes like the steakiest steak you've ever had. 
You know what I'm saying? It is like the apotheosis of beef flavor. It is the steakiest steak you've ever had, which underscores like a simple idea that salt often has a purpose of enhancing everything around it. Like a good chef cooking for you, it's not gonna taste salty when you eat it. They're gonna use salt to make everything else in the meal taste more like itself, right? It's actually the case, by the way, that, that our tongues, the way they work, that when that salt like hits our tongues, it does actually intensify the tongue's capacity to taste things, which is why when it's done right, you're not crazy. You're actually tasting more of the thing that you are eating and enjoying because of the salt. This has uh, been a way that salt's been used for a very, 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 very long time. And it's possible that when Jesus looks at his friends and says, the life of God is for you, that God wants to live God's life in and through you, that Jesus' next thought is, and when that happens, your life will draw out the best in everything around it. Everything good or true or beautiful will be enhanced because of your life, will be amplified because of your life. Now, of course, the other purpose for salt, especially in the ancient world, is as a preservative. So they don't have refrigeration, at least not a lot of it, right? And so the other really, really important reason for using salt back then is that it, it keeps things like bacteria from growing on food, which keeps you from getting sick and dying. That seems really important too. Jesus looks at his friends, and after he says, God wants to live God's life in you, God wants to give God's life to you, then he says, you could be like the kind of thing in the world that enhances all the good and the true and the beautiful and keeps at bay, holds back, restrains all of the rot and illness, all that wages against life, all that is unsafe. Like your life could hold all of that at bay. Jesus seems to think quite highly of a life that consents to God living God's life through it. He looks at like everyday people like you and me, women and men from all different walks of life and different experiences and seems to think that if, if we consent to these blessings and promises, that if we find a way to say, yeah, we wanna, we wanna work with this life of God working through us, that, that we could have a profound impact on the world, drawing out the good and holding back the bad. Now the other uh, image here that Jesus uses is the image of light. And I can't help but think of an experience I had when he talks about light, especially like light uh, in a dark night or in a dark place. And this image is not super comfortable and it, it's gonna point out some of the tensions and how Jesus is describing our presence in the world with these two ideas. Uh, the experience that I'm talking about is actually the last time that South and City Church was trying to figure out where to call home. So right now we're working on that project again, which is why we're talking about the printing press at the Tribune building. But years ago in 2016, 2017, we didn't know where we were gonna call home. And so Amanda and I, my teammate, we, we started sort of like poking around and, and looking at places around town. And one of the places that we toured, wondering if it should be the home of South and City Church, and I'm sorry to admit this today, and if you are troubled by this, I understand, but the answer would have been Club Fever. Anybody know Club Fever? I know nobody wants to admit knowing Club Fever in this room, right? <laughs> nobody wants to admit that they've made some bad decisions there or had some long nights there, but. Club Fever is like the one nightclub that we've had downtown in the last several years, and it's right next to the State Theater. And there was a day when Amanda and I walked into Club Fever, not at night with the mood lighting on, but in broad daylight with fluorescence. And it really was like we walked in and like you wanted to put gloves on, you kind of wanted to like find a hazmat suit, because let's just say that Club Fever does not look that great in daylight, okay? 
which can be the way that light is experienced in places that are usually dark. Right? Light can have an uncomfortable way of exposing things. The same thing that can help us navigate and find our way, the same thing that can keep us from bumping our head on hard objects is, is also the thing that can expose things that we may not want to see. It can be really uncomfortable. Can't it? But he, he says to the people around him, like, if, if you are the kind of people that God wants to live God's life through, that God wants to actually work God's life through, then you may be like light in a dark place, which might be a gift to those who are trying to navigate or who are feeling lost. It might also be a little uncomfortable for all the things that are hidden in darkness that don't want to be exposed, right? Um, both of these images, salt and light, are described in contrast to things around them, right? I mean, salt's entire point and purpose is not that you would, like, eat salt, right? But the way that salt works on other things. And light's, like, most sort of deeply felt meaning is often in, in a dark place or when it illuminates dark moments. And so I think one of the tricks with Jesus giving us these images of our own life is that they could lead us into a kind of antagonistic relationship with things around us. Have you ever seen Christians in an antagonistic relationship with the world around them? I know, hard to believe, hard to imagine. Sometimes, people who seem to be trying to take Jesus really seriously um, end up showing up in the world in a way that feels really antagonistic. But I don't think that these two metaphors have to lead us in an antagonistic direction. In fact, I wonder if Jesus, as he's working through this teaching, I actually wonder if like, he's working that out in his head, right? So first of all, he says, God wants to live God's life in you. And then he says the next thing that's obvious to him, which is, so your life is gonna be like salt and light. It seems like maybe obvious to him. But later in the sermon, it seems obvious to Jesus that he needs to tell these people that I want you to love your enemies and bless those who curse you, that you shouldn't judge others because as you judge others, you might lose sight of the fact that you could very easily be judged right now. And I almost wonder if he knows that even while I'm giving you this image, these images of how you're gonna show up in the world, that I've gotta kinda of govern how that goes because perhaps he's not calling us to be antagonistic even as he's calling us to be distinct. I think there's a difference there. I think there's a difference between um, what you might call standing out and what you might call standing against. I think there's a difference between what you might call uh, contrast and what you might call contempt. And I think for people who are hearing Jesus' words about being distinct in the world, it would be helpful to hold on to those nuances, that those are two different kinds of things. Uh, salt is a gift to the things that it encounters, and light is a gift to a dark world, even if it doesn't always feel that way, but I, I don't see Jesus like, um, getting up on a self-righteous high horse. I just see him um, telling the truth as he understands that it needs spoken. I see him loving in ways that need to be expressed, and it is the case that often those acts in the world run into contrast. It is the case that often those acts in the world bump up against the way things are. But then you see Jesus saying things like, forgive them. The very people who are coming against me, forgive them too. You see Jesus um, having this profound capacity to love in every direction, even while some of those acts of love do bump up against a system 
the experience of some of those acts of love as an act of betrayal, but uh, I don't know that this is calling us to get up on our high horses and to um, get a little too excited about how different and special we are. I think this is Jesus just saying that the kind of people who say yes to the life of God being lived within them will discover from time to time that that life being lived within them will draw them into distinction, into difference with the culture or the currents around them. And back to that journalist, I suspect part of what that journalist was concerned about was even from the outside looking in, that journalist seemed to think that if a follower of Jesus is anything, they ought to be someone, that, that ought to be the kind of thing that offers something distinct or different in the world. Now, um, one of the commentaries that I was working through to understand this text and what it might be saying to us, it said something that I was like, oh, I don't want to go there. And then I was like, no, I think we probably better go there. Um, and I don't know that I even agree entirely with what this person said, but I'm going to tell you what they said, and then we're going to talk about it, okay? You guys all right? No, you don't know yet, because you don't know what I'm going to show you, right? The, the theologian I'm talking about is named Stanley Hauerwas, and Hauerwas is both a Bible scholar and an ethicist. And Hauerwas is working on this text, and before I put the quote on the screen, Hauerwas is talking about ways that, that Christians have tended to think of themselves as different, and the labels or the political identities that they put on that sense of difference. Because this is one of the ways that this gets worked out, right? When you think about Christians being like distinct in the world or Christians having a witness in the world, that often gets translated into identities that aren't just Christian but are also sort of like perhaps political, right? And in response to that, Hauerwas kind of, he, he's not buying it. Because Hauerwas says this, conservatives and liberals differ only and how they think Christians should conform to the world. Yeah! How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm conflicted. On the one hand, I'm really suspicious of the idea that, like, there are no meaningful differences between different political stances. Uh, I'm not comfortable with the idea that all votes are equal, because I think a vote is a sacred thing, and I think in any given season politically, I think um, the way that we use our power really matters to God. And yet, I think there's something really important in true being named here. Um, and I think it has to do with when we try to take what is meant to be different about us, when we try to take what is meant to be distinct about us, and we try to carry that with us into the world, it's natural and perhaps even appropriate for us to look for like how that would line up with the powers of the way things are. And we would look for leaders and parties that would help us express our difference in the world. And that makes sense. I think there's something really important about that discerning work to take the things that are meant to be different about us in terms of our relationship with our neighbors and with our enemies, in terms of our value for, uh, for life, like to carry these things with us into the world and then look for ways to express that difference out there in the world. I think that makes lots of sense. But have you like recently stepped back and just considered the absurdity of trying to find one political party or platform or leader that can fully and coherently express an entire like, Christian worldview? <laughs> like, have you like stepped back and considered the absurdity of that challenge today? Um, can I keep going? I'm gonna keep going, okay. Uh, like, there is a deep stream of Christian history um, around the idea that to, to be with God and to live God's life in the world is to care about life and to be like pro-life. 
Uh, what I've noticed lately is that there's one political party that has um, made a sort of uh, banner for themselves around the label pro-life. But that same party is not especially known for being like anti-death penalty. The leaders that have held highest office from that party have commanded actions in the world that have killed hundreds of thousands of foreigners just in the last like 20 years. Hundreds of thousands of foreigners just in the last, let's say 20 years. Are we uncomfortable yet? Okay, good, let's keep going. Uh, there's another party that I think has sort of built a brand in, in, in part around being like pro-immigrant or pro-refugee. But if you just go through the recent history of the highest, highest empowered leaders for that party, and you look at the effects of their foreign policy and their deployment of military force in the world, you will see that they have commanded actions that have created the circumstances that have led to hundreds of thousands of deaths and refugees and people wanting to be immigrants because the places that they used to call home have been made unlivable largely because of our own foreign policy led by the people who lead the party that pretends to be the party for them. It's a bit incoherent to think that like we can move out into the world and lock in very tightly with one of these labels that Howard Ross is talking about and somehow maintain the kind of difference that Jesus is calling us to express in the world. Now, this is not a plea to not be politically engaged. This is not um, a suggestion that like all parties are created equal at all times. I think there's really meaningful discerning work to do about in any given season, like can your vote be cast in a direction that's better for the things that God cares about? I think those are important discernments for us to ask. But the thing that Hauerwas hammers on frequently in his writing as an ethicist, and I think a thing that Jesus suggests frequently in his own life and teachings, is that you're gonna have a very hard time being faithful to the kingdom of God if you think that that can be fully realized through a king of this world. And I think in this modern era, one of the ways that it feels like people who are trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus in the world, it feels like one of the ways we are really struggling to get this right is that we are losing our saltiness by picking up these other partisan identities, that we are losing our capacity for light in a dark world when all we do is get discipled by Fox News or CNN all day long and we just get sort of nursed in this feeling that it's us against them and that somehow one of those political or partisan identities could be the way that we move out into the world and live the distinct kind of life that we are called to. So this is just one application point, but I think it's one that like, has to get called out, and I wouldn't have called it out except Hauerwas made me, so it's his fault. <laughs> but I think there's something true being named here, and I think um, any of us who wanna call ourselves followers of Jesus in the world and who wanna be the kind of light and salt that he says we could be in the world, we probably better do a lot of work to think about how a political identity or a partisan identity is either helping us in that effort or hindering us in that effort. All right, that's the hard stuff. I'm done with that. I mentioned that, you know, salt and light, they derive a lot of meaning in these metaphors from the fact that they stand in contrast to the things around them, right? And if Jesus is telling people that like, as you consent to God living God's life in you, if Jesus is telling people that you're gonna be in contrast to things around you, 
Well, there's um, a phrase that I made up that I would, I, I, my goal is for it to become like a word, which I think happens in German a lot, but not in English. So here's the phrase I made up. Let me put it on the screen. Out of placeness. Have you ever felt this? Now, there's lots of ways we can feel out of place that have nothing to do with what we're talking about today. But what about the out of placeness that you feel when you're waking up and you're growing up and you're finding new ways of being in the world that are more and more aligned with the way that you feel God moving in your life? And as you wake up and you grow up and you move into greater alignment with the way that you feel God like working in you, then that leads to a sense of out of placeness. Like I'm, I'm kind of out of place out here. Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah? Especially when you take like a brave step toward wholeness or healing or goodness. Especially when you take a big step away from things that are broken or that are breaking you down or that are breaking the world down. You move in the right direction and you might feel a fresh sense of out of placeness. Some of you feel it in your work all the time right now. Like you show up and you just, it's out of place. And it's not because you guys don't like the same football team. And it's not because like you don't have the same experiences. It's precisely because you are trying to wake up and grow up and say yes to God living God's life in you and through you. And as that happens, you are feeling out of place in the workplace. Some of you are feeling this uh, in, in your family. That's a hard one. Maybe it's the house that you came from, the family of origin. And the next time you're going to really bump into it is Thanksgiving, but it's coming. Or maybe it's actually the people you live with right now, you know, partner, kids, parents, I don't know. But there's an out of placeness that is, is coming precisely because you are saying yes to this gift that Jesus keeps talking about, that God wants to live God's life in you. And as you wake up and grow up, you feel out of place. Some of you feel it at school. You feel it on the teams that you're on. You feel it in the locker room. You feel it on the bus. Uh, it's not a good feeling, is it? <laughs> We are hardwired to want to belong. Belonging is safety, right? It's ease. Frankly, it's fun. It's fun to find your groove with people, right? It's fun to feel like you're on the same frequency with the people around you. It's not fun to be out of place. And this out of placeness, I think, can be one of the reasons that we lose our saltiness because it's just so uncomfortable that we just sort of shy away from it and we begin to shut down and we stop saying yes to that life that God wants to live in us because when we said yes to the life that God wants to live in us, it took us into an out of place feeling. But what if that out of placeness could be translated differently? Like the next time you feel that, the next time you kind of bump into the fact that you're a little bit out of place, and, and maybe the, the phrase that comes to mind first is, oh, there's that out of placeness that we talked about on Sunday, right? Well, what if the next time out of placeness is the experience that you're having, you replaced it with a different word, which is purpose? Like, could that be like a little hack that we engineered, like a little instinct that we developed in our brains and our bodies that like when you feel that out of placeness and you know that the out of placeness that you are feeling is coming from you saying yes to God, living God's life in you and through you. When you feel that out of placeness, what if you kind of develop this instinct, this habit, that you would replace it with the word purpose and you would say, this is what it feels like to have a purpose. This is how Jesus talks about salt and light. Let me remind you what he says at the end of this passage that we looked at here. Uh, this is at the very end. Jesus says that you are salt and light, and then he gives a purpose statement, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That out of placeness you're feeling, what if the purpose it serves is that they would see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven? 
Now, I don't know how that feels to you. Is that exciting or not? I don't know. When you see that, do you think, that's what I want? Or do you think that sounds very stodgy and religious? I don't know. I don't know how that feels to you. Glory is a word that I've had a hard time with in religious spaces when it talks about God. Maybe you felt this way too. You ever been in a room or listening to a preacher or singing a song where it seems like the assumption is that God is kind of glory hungry? Come on, you know you've been there, right? You step back from it a little bit and you're like, because if I met a person that needed that much glory, I would refer them to a psychologist, right? I would give them a book on narcissism and say, gently, this might be helpful for you, right? But the, t- the Bible talks a lot about like, glory and God, and Jesus says that the, the joy, the purpose of being salt and light is that they're going to give glory to your Father in heaven. Let me tell you how, um, how I've been working with the word glory and see if it helps you too. So glory is a big word in the Bible, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, but the, the word back in the Jewish imagination doesn't come from religious context. It actually comes from marketplace contexts. And the word glory back in the Hebrew is kavod. And kavod is a word in the marketplace for weight. Like weights and measures. Like weight, right? You ever notice when you go to the gas station that hopefully there's a little seal, there's a little sticker next to where you get your gas and it says that somebody has inspected this meter to make sure that it accurately measures the amount of gas that's coming out. You ever notice that little inspection sticker that's on the gas tank? Yeah, because even today in the year 2021, we still think it's important that when somebody says they're selling you X amount of something, you wanna have confidence that you're getting X amount of something, right? Well, in the ancient world, this is certainly a concern and especially with kind of raw commodities, right? Like precious metals or grains or whatever. Like somebody says in the marketplace, I'm selling you X amount of something. And the way that you're gonna test whether you're really getting X amount of something is if it weighs as much as it should weigh. Make sense? So in this imagination from the marketplace, weight is a way of testing the real, the substance. It's a way of differentiating between counterfeit things and real things. It's a way of differentiating between illusions and real things. It's a way of differentiating between something that's worth less than it seems and something that's worth every bit as much as it claims to be worth. And from those images and experiences, the scriptures begin to speak of the glory of God. What you might say is the weightiness of God. What you might say is the substance of God or the, the, the reality of God, the real of God. The idea that there is something at the center of reality that is, that is completely and totally real. It's not an illusion. The weight and significance of it can never be threatened or diminished. And that it's worthwhile to live your life in orbit around the real rather than living your life around counterfeit things. Right? And Jesus seems to be saying that around us in the world, there are a lot of people who are distracted and um, deceived by counterfeit goods pretending to be the real, by illusions and mirages that won't actually pan out. And he says, but you, you could live the kind of life, like as God lives God's life through, you could be the kind of person that draws people into a relationship with the real, the thing that will not disappoint, with the substance that cannot be diminished, that that's actually like what your life could do in the world. That's a liberating effect from people who've been trapped in illusions, right? And then he says, give glory to your Father in heaven. And what's interesting about this is this is the first mention of Father in the New Testament, as God, God as Father. There's uh, Old Testament uh, points around this, but this is the first time in the New Testament, the first time that we hear Jesus saying that, hey, by the way, you know that mystery at the center of reality? 
that eternal and enduring mystery, that that mystery which lends its being to us before which we are, I mean, frankly, sort of like helpless and held, right? Like before that mystery, we find ourselves seen with the same loving gaze that a parent looks upon their kid with. Now, I know father can be complicated for a couple of reasons. For some, it's the gendered language for God that's um, not great. I get that because, like, clearly God's not gendered. Also, for others, father has been such a painful or complicated experience in your own life that this is not helping you right now. I totally get that. But we, we do, whether your experience has been positive or negative of this word, we do know what it was meant to mean, right? In fact, if you have a painful experience around the word father, I think some of the pain probably comes from the fact that you know what it should have been. You know what you needed that person to be, right? Which just underscores like the power of this word and that Jesus uses it for the relationship that we discover uh, that, that we have with God. That the peculiar and intense, fervent love of a parent is the way that this mystery relates to us that all of us who are living with illusions and mirages are living at distance from that great love. But not that that love is distant from us, but that we are distant from it. And that if we could ourselves turn away from the illusions and turn toward the real, that if we would let some of that salt work on us, some of that light illuminate things for us and turn back toward the real, that we would find ourselves basking in the love and and glow of, of that kind of parental disposition toward us. Now, I'm not a parent, but I have been parented and I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that fervent love. And I'm not a parent, but I have friends who have parented. And I have sat with them shoulder to shoulder, side by side, when that love has worked its way out in the world in overwhelming ways. Especially when I've sat with friends who are parents, members of this church community who are parents, when that love has cost them so much. Um, when kids are made vulnerable, perhaps, through sickness or through injury, and you see the way that the heart just leaps out of the chest of that parent and they will do anything for that kid. I've sat with parents who weep in their helplessness because their kid is making destructive decisions or are stuck in an addictive pattern that is destroying them. And the fervor, the, the intensity of the, the love that is breaking these people open, that's cracking open their chest and pouring out in the world, like, you've felt that, right? You've seen that. And Jesus here for the first time in the New Testament is saying that that's the nature of how it is that God relates to people. And that you and I living as salt and light could have a part in other people discovering that. That, To quote Dallas Willard, that the universe is a community of boundless love. To quote Francis Spufford, that the universe is held together by a continual and infinitely patient act of love, that love is at the center of it, that the real, that the glory, that the heaviness, that the substance of of all things at their heart is love, and that we don't have to live at a distance from it or deluded by other things, we can live in relationship with it. And you and I, maintaining our sense of distinction in the world, letting the life of God take us out of place a little bit for the sake of the world, that you and I could live uh, lives with that kind of purpose so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do you see how I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually think the Sermon on the Mount is good news. I don't think it's meant to be heavy burden. I think it's Jesus looking at his friends and saying like, do you have any idea the possibilities of being human? Do you have any idea the possibilities of your life? I don't care what you have been through. 
I don't care how ashamed you are of where you have been. I don't care if anybody has ever told you that you are eligible or not. You are eligible for the life of God. And as you say yes to it, the possibilities of your human life are profound. The weight of your human life is profound. And I can't help but think that that journalist who was talking about the preachers and their sneakers. By the way, I gotta be careful. Be really careful throwing shit at other preachers because I really like my boots today. Um, I shouldn't have worn these today, come to think of it. Oh well. I can't help but think that part of what that journalist was lamenting, that first quote that I showed you, was maybe there's actually something within that journalist that knows that you and me, like we were intended to be salt and light. And that the whole human family, that we all need one another's help living in fidelity to the real and to that love. And I almost hear a lament in that journalist's quip that like, I, I feel like they have nothing different to offer us and we need something different. And so I hope you, um, you hear the promise of the blessings that Jesus spoke to us and today I hope you walk around celebrating the out of placeness that you may be dealing with, that it's a, a whisper of purpose. I hope you sense the ways that your life can bring out the best around you, the true and the good and the beautiful, the way that your life can hold back the decay that threatens and destroys, the way that your life could be a beacon helping others navigate, the way that your life might be a, a power that exposes some things that need to be exposed, but ultimately the way that your life could help others live their lives in orbit around that great love that knows us as sons and daughters. Right, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? I wanna reiterate uh, two things. One is the encouragement to like make the Sermon on the Mount your own during this season. Uh, grab a Bible, spend more time with these words. It's one thing to hear a sermon, it's another thing to let them work on you through the week. So um, trying to make this really like methodical so you know where we are. So spend some time with Matthew 5 this week and let it keep working on you. Uh, the other note is again, if you wanna um, talk to me about our exploration of the Tribune building uh, or other options, I'd love to hear from you. I'll be upstairs right after the gathering. And that being said, uh, may you hold your head high and may you hear Jesus telling you the possibilities of being human. May you sense that the out-of-placeness that you have bumped into from time to time is not a problem but a promise, that you have a purpose to serve. May your life enhance the good and hold back all that is rotting and decaying in this world. May your life be a light shining in bright places and may others discover their lives drawn into the orbit around God who loves them and sees them like a parent. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.